Hello, heroes. Welcome to Modifier. I'm your host, Megan Dornbrock. This week, I have one more Dreamation episode for you heroes, which means we're almost done with recordings from the echoey annex room and right at the onset of my con sniffles. Hang in there, because I finally, finally got Erica Chapel on to talk about her in-progress game, Five Across the Heart. Erica shared some notes on this game with me about a year ago now, and I finally got a chance to play it back at Metatopia. It's a game that has seen many iterations and has taken influence from many game systems, including Erica's own It Must Be Tuesday. It's a game about punk teen magical girls, and I couldn't be happier to share our mutual gushing about the game and the genre with you. There's some cool mechanics in the works with this game, and Erica has been sharing its progress and evolution online the whole way. If you're into Mahouse or watching a game system evolve, you're in for a good one. Let's get to the show. And still at Dreamation, yet another live Dreamation episode. Hi. And we are going to talk about their game Five Across the Heart, which I'm super excited about, and probably lots and lots of things about Magical Girls. Yeah. Uh, so this is going to be a good episode. Do you want to introduce yourself a little bit, maybe where people might know you from? Sure. So uh, I'm... I've been writing games for the past couple of years now. Well, I've been writing games forever, but I've been publishing games for the past couple of years now. Uh, so I put about two and a bit years ago, I put out my first game, uh, Must Be Tuesday, which is a lighthearted Buffy the Vampire Slayer sort of deal. And um, I started writing Five Across the Heart, and I've been posting updates about it. So a lot of people have like kind of come across it, stumbled across it, and I published a couple other games. Uh, a military role-playing game and a lot of little silly games, mostly about Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. So, <laughs> so why Arnold Schwarzenegger? Uh, I love terrible action movies. Like, okay. I, I'm I'm a person who likes bad things. Like my favorite show right now is Riverdale. Um, <laughs> but uh, so are the 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 particularly terrible Arnold Schwarzenegger movies of like Red Heat, Commando, stuff like that. Like mm-hmm. I just I really dig that kind of awful nonsense so i started writing um i wrote an everyone is john style game where everyone plays a malfunctioning terminator okay and then i wrote a game based on commando where you try to be the one the villain that dies last and uh mm. it started developing into the idea that maybe i should write a role-playing game like a one-page role-playing game for every arnold schwarzenegger movie so that's an ongoing project. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that's that's got a a foreseeable future. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> to work. That's a big a big thing. <laughs> but the other big thing that you're into is magical girls. Oh yes, which that's why we're friends. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> and five across the heart is uh, apocalypse world hack or no. what was? I mean, it is sort of like it's a custom system that has like a lot of the way I kind of think about it these days is I think that. Every game designer should learn from Apocalypse World. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that if your game these days doesn't have influence from Apocalypse World, right? And you don't know exactly what you're doing, and I would never claim to know what I'm doing. <laughs> like, you're probably going a little off course. <laughs> well, okay. You know, like I think it's really important yeah. to learn the stuff about like you know rolling as story twists instead of right. as actions and stuff like that. So, Five Across the Heart has bits of Apocalypse World in it, but it also right. has like. I don't know. My game, my my testers always make fun of me as it gets more and more fate like. Mm-hmm. You know. Yes, it has been through many many iterations, and yeah. and maybe that's that's probably part of where I'm I'm mixing things up in my brain, because you've been working on it for a while. Yeah, almost two years. It started as okay. The journey of this game yes. is incredible. Okay. Because it, it mirrors a journey that I took. Let's start with the 
my favorite show when I was a child was Sailor Moon. I knew nothing about it, but I love that terrible deep dub and like, mm-hmm. I loved that show so much. Uh, but obviously I, I stopped watching it eventually. It went off the air. I right. moved on and, uh, I got into role playing games when I was 13 and I started writing role playing games almost immediately thereafter. I have a bunch of terrible, terrible games from high school. Um, but the first game that I ever published was, uh, must be Tuesday, this Buffy the Vampire Slayer thing. And the fun thing that it has is a slider between mundane and supernatural, where if you fall off one end, you become the victim of the week. You fall off the other, you become the monster of the week. Ooh. And you take over GM duties at okay. that point to show your demise. Uh, and somebody said, like, people were throwing up ideas for, like, monsters that could go into it, right? Mm-hmm. And somebody said, you should do a Magical Girl one. And I went, well, it's not really the same thing, is it? I don't know. I haven't watched a Magical Girl show in forever. I love Madoka. Maybe I could do something madoka Okay. And um, I said, well, you know, this is probably a good opportunity, if I'm going to write this thing, to go back and watch Sailor Moon. Because I always <laughs> wanted to do that. So I loaded up, you know, I found the some some subs of Sailor Moon, and I... Jumped in like, yeah, I heard it was different in the Japanese. I don't really know much about it. I've mm-hmm. never watched it linearly. And then I powered through this series. Like, I did the first season in, like, a week. Uh-huh. It took a little longer to do the second season because it's kind of slow at a lot of places. Yeah. And once I cleared it to the third season, I just powered through the whole thing. Uh, cried like a baby at the end of it. Like, mm-hmm. it was, once again, like, my favorite show. Like, oh, my God, what an incredible thing. And I like scrambled to find whatever I could like it. Or, you know, I started watching the musicals. I watched the live action. Yep, like I yep. immersed myself in this stuff and I went, Oh yeah, I forgot. I really love this stuff. And, um, during my sort of frantic finding of stuff, I also found uh, a lot of really cool essays written by people who sort of, you know, we're talking about more of the political and personal aspects of Sailor Moon and what it meant to them. And um, being somebody who was having all sorts of identity wibbles at the time, I sort of latched onto a lot of that sort of stuff. And um, I, I grabbed onto one the, the particular essay about how magical girls were um, sort of this this version of su- superheroes who mm-hmm. the, whose pa- trappings of power were femininity, which I thought was an incredibly cool little like, yeah. observation, uh, and. I started writing this thing, which originally was still just going to be a hack for Must Be Tuesday, mm-hmm. uh, to be a magical girl game about uh, overthrowing an evil government. Um, right. The, yeah. Like the the original idea was always like the Dark Kingdom has already taken over, and you are the magical girl resistance. Right. And um, I started influence. I started putting in a lot of the the influence from stuff I love, like uh, rag girl music and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like um, a lot of like you know, the early version of this was written while just listening to Bikini Kill albums on <laughs> loop. And um, fantastic, yeah. And so it, it it had a it had a punk sensibility from an early um, from early incarnations of it, but. Um, I also have have a playtesting group, which is a really cool thing. I have a lot of people who um, are into my stuff and and want to help me test it out. Um, so it started going through all these playtest iterations. Like the first version of it took like two hours to write, and I played through it with them. And I went, "Oh, I've got changes to make." And here I am, two years later, and the game looked nothing like it did when it started. It's been like three or four things since then. It's still not done, but it's always getting closer. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a process, yeah. yeah. And but it's an interesting process because I don't, 
I'm a person who throws away games. I write things that people think are done and throw them out because I don't think they're good enough. Right. And Five Across the Heart is something that I've I've basically thrown that game out four or five times, but I'm always writing it. I'm always coming back to it. Mm -hmm. Like, gosh, I hope I get it right soon. Like, I want to get it done this year, but I wanted to get it done last year. So, you know, can't have illusions about it. Um, but I, I think it's like the project that I'm writing, not just because I think it's a cool idea, but because I think that I need to do it. Right. Yeah, I, I can see that. And I, when, when you first started talking about it, I was thinking there's, there's like an adage um, about art that, you know, art is knowing when to stop. Yeah. Kind of, you know, like uh, an artist will just mess with things for infinity if if they could and yeah. and and it's it's the it's the knowing when you're done but i think this sounds like more than just that knowing that there's something still yet to do like you're you're somehow recognizing that there's there's something missing or there that it's not quite doing what you want it to do yeah the, so uh the iterations of it have been really interesting because the very first versions of it were actually fairly combat focused okay um, yeah. cuz i wanted to do um, something big and fun and, um, like, it had some interesting ideas. Like, you played on grid, grids, like, in D&D, but the grids were 20 meters to represent, like, you know, these characters flipping and flying through the air. And, mm -hmm. Um, you know, having a great time and big, huge magic explosions and all sorts of fun stuff. Uh, and that was actually a really fun little tactical combat system. Balance was all over the place, because it always is. But yeah. it was fun to play as combat. But that was all it was. And, I mean, a role-playing game isn't just combat. And I, as I was doing this, I was learning a lot more about role-playing games. I was reading things like Apocalypse World and, um, like, getting invested in games that did a lot more than combat. And I realized that it would be, like, a disservice to this thing I was trying to do to have it just be a fun tactical combat game. It has yeah. to be an actual exploration of themes, so uh, I started rewriting it, and um, then the next version of it was it still had some of that combat stuff, but it was uh, a little bit more. It had some fate stuff, but it also had a lot of. Um, I was kind of playing early on with. Um, there's this game about Princess Peach for the Nintendo DS. Oh, okay. Where um, a lot of people hate it because it's like, oh, it's the game about Princess Peach and it's all about emotions. Mm -hmm. But there's other people who love it because of that because what it is is there's like a, a, a magic bomb goes off in the Mushroom Kingdom and everyone loses control, like the ability to control their emotions. Yeah. Except Princess Peach. Because she's a very common collected person yeah. who can use that stuff. So she's using the magic associated with it to get through problems. Oh, okay. And, and like... Um, I can see, like, yes, the argument that it is sexist, like, stands. But I think that, and I think it's one of those things where if there's hmm. more female characters than Peach, right. it might be easier to do. Uh, so, like, I'm not disputing that whatsoever, but I think the, the basic core idea of Princess Peach being the only one who can handle the you know her emotions and everybody else is a mess is mm -hmm. kind of an interesting idea. So I had a version of it that had some, had a, a, a wheel, like an emotion wheel. Sure. And you were, you were, setting goals and using that to sort of manipulate your characters, how your character felt about things and people. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was a mess and clunky and bad and um, probably shouldn't have done it that way. But I learned a lot. <laughs> right. Well, that's an important part of the process. And yeah. that's when I hit on the thing that I think no matter what happens to this game is always going to be the core of it, which is most role-playing games always come back to the question of what do you want? 
or, or what do you do? What do you do? Like, okay. you know, the, the apocalypse world always tells you about to do that when somebody asks what, what you are, uh, like, you know, the, the GM establishes something mm-hmm. and then says, what do you do? And you say something and the GM says, okay, cool. This is what happens. What do you do? And I started thinking about how, what should really be core to something that was like Sailor Moon is the question of what do you want? Because their game's about growing up and what growing up or their show's about growing up. And this game should be about growing up and growing up is about finding out what you want, not in just in the long term, but like now, Mm -hmm. a lot of teenage despondence, despondentness is not knowing what you want. Like literally being in a situation where you don't know what to do because you don't know where you want to go from here, even in just the like, should I go get a snack? Yeah. So that question is the one that I always come back to when I'm running it or writing it, asking players, what do you want? What does your character want? And coming up with ways of incentivizing them to pursue what they think their character wants and to define what their character should want and to redefine the things that drive those desires. Okay. Um, so the, the question of how, uh, sorry, of, of what do you want, uh, can apply to, you know, so many different types of characters and so many different types of games. Um, how do you deal with keeping it in the theme of like, these are magical girls in the game, I guess, how, how do you explore that? So we actually did, um, after Metatopia, which you were in my game yeah, and that was pretty cool, but it didn't really go anywhere because the system was... Very um, shoestring at the time. It's in flux. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I, I came back and I started writing a bunch of new stuff, and um, I was listening to One Shot, and I mm-hmm. heard the one, uh, the the head uh, the headspace character creation thing, and I've already been thinking about session zero stuff, and I went, yeah. this is probably the way to do it, like to to define places and people and what you are there to defend, because mm-hmm. that's another thing that I think is really important about magical girls is that they're defenders. Like, a lot of superheroes are, like, rescuers, or they're more aggressive. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes you get the Punisher out of it, right? But something that's really consistent about Magical Girls is that they have this, this, um, they have various anchors to the world that are things that they need to defend. And the conflicts that come up, even though they're often these very cosmic conflicts, always have personal anchors. Like, even if it's just Sailor Moon rescuing Naru for the, like, fucking 12th time in the season. Yeah. They're always coming back to something personal that drives them uh, and like personal connections to people and places. So building like the the next thing I did with the game was I built in a session zero system, which uh, has you define a location. You're the place where you you are defending uh, and has you define some things about the villains who are attacking it uh, or undermining it or ruling it actually Mm -hmm. uh, being the big one. And the other thing it does is, is it has you talk about uh, each other and create um, these beliefs. The game runs on mm. a set of two belief systems in like next to one another. You have these deeper convictions that your character has that are uh, the, the things that they aspire to be or aspire to uphold. Uh, and that's where I can do some predefined stuff to go like, you know... Uh, how does your character see themselves as a defender of, you know, good things? Like, what values does your character want to uphold? What things do they want to represent? And then the okay. other one are these, like, little fleeting fancies, uh, which is actually what they're called. They're called fancies. And they're, um, <laughs> they're things that your character wants sometimes, like, they're not bad, but they're things that your character will often want in spite of themselves or 
as a comfort thing. Um, and, or like in this, at the start of the game, the two are weighed equally. So, um, defending the world and sleeping in are the same <laughs> sort of, uh, are given the same sort of import. Yeah. And the game, the advancement from there is about sort of growing into that sense of uh, the greater sense of self. Oh, okay. And um, the other thing that you do is you, you go around and you, you have to agree with somebody else's conviction or fancy, okay. disagree with somebody else's conviction or fancy, and um, uh, I think it's something complementing it. Uh, this has gone through a couple of iterations. I don't yeah. have a terrible memory. Um, but it creates these really interesting groups, uh, especially when one of the, the characters, the, the GM, plays the familiar of the group, mm. and they have beliefs and fancies. Uh, so the um, the familiar ends up having the the favorite magical girl who you know is agrees with their view, and the trouble the troublemaker who uh-huh. uh, has different ideas of what they need to do as a group, um, and that that create like everybody with everybody having connections with one another, it makes them all friends and al- as well as allies. Mm-hmm. Like I think that's something you get a lot is you get a lot of. Uh, groups, even in games with session zeros, where you give reasons for people to be doing things together as a group, but they're not friends. So something that I wanted to do was make everybody be friends. Yeah. Yeah, I think that is one of the core tenets of the genre is yeah. like, this is a group of friends, even if they didn't start that way. Like they, in Sailor Moon, they start as complete strangers, some of them very isolated. Um, but that's something that you know, they, they become friends through this duty, but yeah, it's, yeah. One of the questions, the first questions that you ask everybody is, um, so how did, were you friends first and then magical girls or magical girls and then friends, but yeah. either way you pick up, you always pick up with everybody being fairly close to one another. Yeah. Yeah. You need to be and like, and that's, I think something that they come back to in the show a lot is, is you're not going to be strong as a team unless you're strong. And those yeah, friendships. So exactly. that's, that's, that is awesome. And that also, I feel like alleviates some of the, the trouble with these games where you're trying to figure out, like, how does our party get started? How does our band of murder hobos all meet <laughs> at the tavern? You know, like, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, one of the other ones that I did, you brought up the tavern was, uh, to find a hangout <laughs> spot. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a, like a karaoke or like a yeah, well, <laughs> video the, game parlor. The test group has a, um, uh, a cafe attached to a library because they're all a huge, like the characters they've made are a bunch of nerds, Oh, but they're all different kinds of geeks. Like you've got the theater kid and the drama kid and the, yeah. the science guy and the reader. And they all sort of, sort of clumped up over their, their, um, their weird interests. Okay. Um, that is related to a question I wanted to ask is I've seen in a lot of magical girl themed games is you are given those archetypes that we see over and over again in the shows. You've got like the smart one and you've got the, like the mysterious one and the, the strong one and stuff like that. Um, or the blue one and the green one, you know, <laughs> uh, for those who speak that language. Um, is that something that you have? Like, do you have archetypes for people or is it just sort of like, from, from the start, build your own, build your I, girl. I made it freeform, like, form, but I also tried to set up the, like, it's always been freeform, because I find that typically groups already have those dynamics, or dynamics similar to them, and they, or they, and they pick up those dynamics really quickly through interaction with one another. So I think the important part of Session Zero is interacting with each other's characters before anything starts, and while things are still malleable, mm-hmm. so that you can make changes to fall into those kind of ideas. And 
the great thing about the fancies is that because you disagree with one another on it, you're always going to have things like, so, you know, somebody takes a classic one when you explain the thing. Like, you know, oh, my character doesn't like to study. Like, their fancy is dodge work, right? <laughs> yeah. That means that somebody on the team is going to be somebody who studies. Oh, okay. And so they'll look at that and they'll go, oh, maybe I can revise some stuff about my character. And the last thing you build is always your magical powers. Okay. You define your character as a person, as a human person first. Mm-hmm. And then the magical girl stuff is... You, you the in the the weird sort of nebulous lore of this is magical girl forms are always the idealized version of a person mm-hmm. so they're always the sort of the even if it's subconscious the person you always you want to grow up to be uh in this exaggerated and magical form so doing that last means that the person who ended up picking liking to study because somebody else decided to blow off work has then got the chance to, when they start looking through how they build their character, which is all based on around costumes and accessories, mm-hmm. they go like, oh, maybe, you know, I should uh, grab those glasses that, you know, let me see magical auras. And mm-hmm. maybe I should grab the computer-related stuff and be a little bit more tech-oriented. Or um, or they just come up with some cool, uh, like, lore or background for their character that they can tie into, like... You know, my character studies a lot because she loves history. So, she, you know, her magical girl form is very knightly, you know, like very and weirdly yeah. historical, ac- historically accurate. And people have questions about that because, you know, the, even historians don't know that that's what the, the thing is supposed to look like. But mm-hmm. magic, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. All right. So now I have so many things I want to know about this part. Building the magical versions of these characters, uh, building this team. Do you build them together as a like a th- cohesive themed team? Not or- usually, uh, oh, because okay. this is a like a sort of there's the punk sensibility to the game. Like, oh, okay. The idea that these are these are re- these are rebels. Gotcha. The idea that they would be ragtag makes sense, and I I really do like the idea of a team that all looks a little different. Like mm-hmm. this is this is a like Sailor Moon is always my touchstone for this, right? But this is the Madoka part coming in because I really liked Madoka too. I haven't I watched it once and I've never been able to rewatch it because just <laughs> yeah. it hurt me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, it is um, it is a mean show. <laughs> yeah, but uh the the thing that I really liked about Madoka in terms of character design is that everybody has a character design that uh is reflective of the character's personality and abilities mm. and sort of the the nature of the ideas that they draw from. So um you know, this, this more elegant older girl who, uh, mommy, the, 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 the blonde one yes. with the weird curls. Yeah, like I like she's her. got, she's got this very, um, late Victorian Edwardian style with her, you know, the, the way that her shirt and collar goes together mm-hmm. and her, her longer skirt and the petticoats and all that. And, um, that fits both with her weapon, the muskets yeah. and this, this sort of idea that because she is older and because she's been doing it longer, she comes off as refined and a little old fashioned to the other characters. Yeah. Especially when we find out that her mercy and morality that she has towards the other characters is considered old fashioned to the younger and more rebellious characters mm. or uh Sayaka, the blue haired one. Yep. Uh, she is, um, sort of a knight. She's a paladin and it's reflected in a lot of the look of her, her stuff. Even her skirt being cut at an angle is supposed to look like the, like a cloak of a musketeer hanging over one shoulder. Yeah. Um, and she has a cape and she has a breastplate and all that kind of stuff. So that's stuff that I wanted to, to mimic. Um, so one of the other things that has stayed through all the incarnations of this game is that you always have built your character's powers by defining what your costume looks like. 
uh, and picking from lists of costume elements. Excellent. Okay, yeah. So tell us about like this so process. It's a little in flux right now. Yeah, no, that's fine. I, I finally got the narrative parts to something that I really like, mm-hmm. and I'm making adjustments to it, but they're adjustments to like the nature of resolution and math and stuff like that, rather than like, nope, we got to burn it all down. Of course, <laughs> you're talking to me now, like two months from now, I might be gone. Um, but that's fair. It, it, like right now, I like I like the place the narrative stuff is at. Yeah. Unfortunately, the combat, which used to be really good and really compelling, is poop. <laughs> it's, it's it's kind of uh, nonsense right now. Uh, it's getting better. Yeah. I ditched turn structures entirely for it and just went with something freeform, a little apocalypse worldy. Like act react, um, but now I have to redefine all everything again. I've got like four or five different incarnations of these different costume types, mm-hmm. but I've always had a list of about twenty costume elements, give or take, of of themes that I always wanted people to bring up. Yeah, and like some of them are like you know the 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 classic schoolgirl look. It, that's there for a reason. Mm-hmm. These characters are students of the their future selves, right? And it's a dress up thing, like yeah. um. That's one of the elements that, uh, I can't, oh, it's that person on RPG.net who watches through Sailor Moon Shadowjack. Mm, okay. Uh, had a great observation that, uh, Sailor Moon's original costumes, like the, the early ones. Oh, yeah. They're dress up. Yes. Basically. They're her school uniform that has been sort of heightened and sure. Matured, They've got like matura- matura- pieces and bits and pieces of other yeah, things. Yeah. With bits attached to it to make it sparkly and magical and f- fabulous and fantastic. Um, so that was always an option. And the thing that that's always done is that you take that, it doesn't do much for you now, mm-hmm. but it always, it makes your character advance faster or bigger or better, uh, or like gives you more stuff to, to get into. But mm-hmm. there's also like, there's always been like nightly gear. Cause I really like that kind of imagery. Same. Yeah. Um, like magical knights is a really cool idea yes. to me. Uh, in the background of this, the knights of the round table were, uh, precursors to the magical girls. Um, the, I wrote a short story, uh, called Familiar, which follows, uh, this raven familiar from prehistory to the modern day Mm -hmm. as they, as they sort of go through all this stuff. Like, you know, they have, uh, as the, the old empire of the, of magic falls and he was on the rebel side, his lover was on the, the other side and we find out why they're animals. They, they transformed into animals in order to sort of hide from the gaze of the high queen. Oh and then um, we we see that we see him in Roman times, like pecking away at the magical inst- infrastructure, hiding behind frescoes, and like formulating a plan. And then we have a, a comedy scene of him giving Lancelot this trinket he made to hide them from the. Every, in this world, everyone has magic naturally. Mm-hmm. The world ought to be a place of magic and wonder, but all of our natural magic is being suppressed by this magical government, which is like Ooh. taxing our emotions and our life force from us. Um, hmm. It's very sort of anarcho-feminist angle to it in philosophy. Um, so the, the, this raven drops in and drops this, uh, this amulet in the hands of this young Welsh boy. And it's like, you're a magic knight now. We've got <laughs> things to do. Uh, and then it cuts, but it, then it cuts forward a couple hundred years. And we find out that, um, the high court's answer to this has been that they've twisted the code of chivalry to create this much more awful and patriarchal thing. And, um, he, the, the raven is stealing the, the brooch that he handed out to this, this kid who's, mm. you know, slow, slow, slew the local, bleh, slayed the local lord and just taken his castle. 
and just ruled over because he thinks he's entitled to it. <laughs> and he has a brief moment where he sees a girl by the river and then decides to drop the amulet in the river and fly away instead. And then cut to like the early 19th century when he gets this idea, like he, he drops in to try to, um, uh, help a family at the, the house he's staying at. Mm-hmm. Like he's rusting in the, 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 the roof of the thing and he sees there's like a magical, evil magical crystal, like jadeite scheme going on. And he, he pecks the crystal loose, but the girl whose bedroom he jumped in, like hits him with a frying pan. And, <laughs> Come um, on. Uh, anime happens and wow. she becomes the first magical girl, basically. Okay. Uh, and I had a lot of fun with that. Like, what would the magical girl, um, like ideal be for somebody in the early 19th century? Yeah. Uh, with very different fashions and ideals and stuff like that. Um, Ooh. and then, you know, cut to the modern day and this rebel group, you know? So, yeah. um, I forget where I was going with that, but <laughs> I don't know. We went to a cool place though. Huh? Yeah, it was, it was a cool, I had a great deal I'm into of fun it. writing that. I, that's Magic awesome. Knights, that was Yes, it. which are fantastic and yeah. I love them. And I, I, and realize it's an audio medium, so people can't see how happy I got when, when <laughs> you said that, the uh, King Arthur round, Knights of the Round Table are the first magic, like precursors to Magical Girl because Im- those are both my jams so hard. <laughs> I have this image that the real King Arthur was like 12 years old and was basically like Usagi in <gasps> yeah. night form. And like, oh. yeah, he's actually under a mountain somewhere, like mm-hmm. frozen in crystal or something. And maybe yeah. a mission can be getting him out. There you go. Um, oh. I have this, I, like, I, I, I have to get the Magical Girl stuff down first, but I want to do alternate player classes. Mm-hmm. Because I know people are going to want to play Tuxedo Mask and stuff like that. Sure, so sure. I want to find a way to do Tuxedo Mask in this framework that I've got. And uh, I ha- I've got a couple of approaches that I want to do. And one of them is that uh, you can find and reawaken some of these ancient knights with yeah. their original codes of chivalry. But they would have to deal with like the t- the time displacement and the mm-hmm. differing values. And they'd have ve- like their convictions would be replaced with like sworn oaths. Ooh. Yeah. That would be very interesting. Yeah. I like that a lot. Oh, I want to get the core of this thing done first, you know? Yeah. Understandable. Um, so you were, you mentioned you've got some, you're at a place that you like with the narrative. Yeah. It it. it goes, it goes really well. Uh, the last change I made to it was, uh, to the, the, the basic uh, mechanic, like the basic resolution system that it still works the same way mostly but Mm -hmm. there's guidelines that are much more uh tightly controlled and it makes a lot more difference what stat you're rolling now uh it sort of controls the outcomes a little bit because the game has three stats and they're approaches instead of abilities okay uh they're hot cold and warm so just like you know hot anger or direct approach or just getting things done right uh cold which is i often joke cold is playing like a role player Metagaming or plotting, planning, the kind of backstabby murder hobo bullshit that characters engage in when they don't really have the morality of a character. Mm -hmm. So that's a great one to bring up whenever you have a character who tries to do something that makes sense from a mechanical or if you were a person making a rational plan about the situation perspective. And I tried to set up the consequences of it so that it either it goes really well and you get the feeling of satisfaction or your whole life falls apart because that's not what this genre is. And then warm is the like friendly one that cool. It's a great stat in narrative because yeah. it usually goes really well for you in narrative, but it doesn't work as well in combat most of the time because unfortunately you can't hug a demon. 
or can you? <laughs> when you get really good at it and when you have spells to accompany it, it's awesome. But early on, it makes you the support character who helps their friends out and runs away from demons a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. And you also mentioned, it sounds like you've got a like a playtest group that's been yes. working out. So uh, how long have they been playing the game? What they've been Since the very start since of it. Okay, awesome. Yeah. What is that experience like? Like, uh, what kind of things have they have they broken for you? Have they oh have they found, like? There's posts throughout the thread that I use to sort of track my thing, which are video game style patch notes. Oh, okay. To the sort of to that just so an illustration of the kind of shit that they have ruined over the course of the game. Mm-hmm. They're wonderful. I want them to know they're going to be listening to this. I want them to know that they're wonderful, and I hate them so much <laughs> because <laughs> and they're doing their job. Yeah, they're like there's times when I've had to split posts into multiple posts of just like. All right, so we got had to get rid of the hat because the hat was broken, and um, th- in the very first playtest, somebody had a hat that let them roll like fifty more dice. Mm. Um, <laughs> wow! We've got a you know we're changing this and we're changing the size of the dice because it turns out that the modifiers right now are just too big and like all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, every they're, they're at the point now where they're just joking about like you know oh you know this version will last a week you know yeah so. But I'm, it's good because that's true, and they, you know, it's a great help. Excellent. No, that it's good to have a reliable play yeah. group. I feel like to to go back and see, because um, they're familiar with it. Exactly. They can, they can yeah. point things out. Uh, though that does um, also have a difficulty with like they've been through so many iterations of it at this point that legacy rules creep into the way that they think about it. Oh so, yeah. Um, I'm trying like I'm trying to when I do fresh versions now. I'm trying to branch out to like other groups mm-hmm. to try to get fresh. Fresh eyes on it before I um, drop it back with the people who will snap it over their knee. Uh huh. There's a couple like the group has a lot of different like people who ask. Some of them ask like really good questions that like, oh, I'm gonna have to think about that one, and you know, make me reassess a lot of stuff. And other people who are just like, well, I took like a look for about ten minutes, and I went, if I took this spell, this thing, this thing, and this thing, yeah. uh, I've broken your game wide open. Uh, <laughs> I will kill any demon in one shot, and all his friends, and everybody else becomes friends with me. <laughs> I go, well, I'll fix that. See you next week. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Uh, And so you've been playing playtesting at these types of cons. Uh, Uh, Yes. Well, I've only ever done the Metatopia Metatopia? one and a couple of other little, like, just random things like that. Uh, I I didn't bring it this to to Dreamation because uh, I was trying to run something else. Sure. uh, Yeah, and also because I'm not really... I'm not confident what I have right now is in a playable state. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure it would work really good for 15-minute stretches, and then I'd have to go, and then this happens, mm-hmm. and we're on to a new thing. How – what do you think you'll have to do, or what uh, – how do you think you'll have to approach getting it to a playable state? Uh, as crazy as this sounds, I need to keep all the rules and stuff. The rules are all good, but what yeah. I need to do is I need to – I'm one of those persons, who, people who work with multiple screens, like I can't mm-hmm. do one anymore. So what I need to do is shove everything, all my existing files onto a screen over there. Sure. Open a brand new document and transcribe everything, like f- like fresh, all the ideas over there okay. are going into here in yep. a totally rewritten form so that it has a cohesive thing. Unfor- like At this point, unfortunately, the game has loops that are so tight that it's really hard to explain them. Right. Never mind. Write them down because the like everything feeds back into itself. Yeah. Um, oh, that's something I I love talking about is uh, yeah. I I do I make a lot of games and I concept a lot of games. I do for every game I complete, 
I have five games that I got to a playable state and I decided that it wasn't worth it or that they weren't going in the right direction and about 10 concept explorations that didn't make it because that's kind of how I, mm. I get excited about something. I write something and I go, oh, maybe not. But one of the ways I love concepting games is flowcharts because um, yeah. games have to be cyclical. Uh, they're narratives that never end. Or if they do end, they end at the behest of the players and the GM. So the system itself has to always cycle. Okay. So I write these flowcharts that come in at the top and always flow back up mm-hmm. to the top of like, well, this leads to getting more of these, which means that you can do this, which generates things that lead back to the top of the chart. Okay. Which is a really good way of making systems that work really well for like creating cool narratives and uh, having good math. Like I'm, I can't, I failed math three times in high school, mm-hmm. but so I, I don't know numbers. I can't do mental math, but I found that if I build my systems tight enough, it doesn't matter. I eventually learned to feel out the changes without actually having to know any of the mathematics. Okay. Um, but uh, it makes it real hard to explain it to people because everything has to, everything has something that came before it. Everything has something dependent on it and yeah. which it is dependent to. And that, Makes it really hard to write it in a way that a human can understand. <laughs> um, yeah, that yeah. can be tricky. Especially when you're doing a lot of revisions and what links to what changes. So yeah. that's kind of the reason that it's a mess right now. People who are listening, the, the, these episodes will be spaced far apart, but uh, we just finished talking with uh, John Adamus not too long ago, and he's got some good thoughts on revisions and revisions and how he approaches it. Multiple drafts is something yeah. that's important, especially in this age of like... Um, you know, Google Docs and stuff like that. It can be really easy to get hitched on a draft that you've written. Right. So I try to make a point of like, re- like recycling to a, a fresh page every yes. once in a while. I've done that about six times. Okay. So uh, that's pretty good. <laughs> but like on top, like the game right now is about fifteen thousand words of okay. like think of things I got to rewrite. But it's about fifteen thousand words of rules, mm-hmm. and behind it is about. I think on last count, 650,000 words of notes. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and like old drafts, yep, and old revisions, yep. and old equipment sets, and old spells, and sure. word webs. <laughs> things things that could be useful later. Yeah, really, exactly. To, to mine them for other things. They end up nesting in a, like I have a an old version, and yeah. in that folder is the version before that, and in the, <laughs> the version uh-huh. before that, until you're like all the way to the edge of the Google Doc window. Yep. So ultimately, when people play this game, when people play five, five Across the Heart, what is the experience you want them to come away having had? I think the ideal for me would be for them to, in the course of three or four sessions, have the experience the narrative arc of a good season of Sailor Moon. Cool. Uh, to start with characters who have few attachments to anything but each other. Mm-hmm. And who have mostly frivolous goals. And then at the end of that, to have confronted something larger than themselves and to have grown as people, uh, okay. and to have taken a concrete step towards who they're going to become and to make it so that they can go back and do that again and, and take another step in if they wanted to do another set of sessions. Okay. Uh, how do you do that with the game so far? At least in this version of it, how do you take, so they start with these, these, more frivolous goals or these, these little things. How do you make them confront something bigger? So the interesting thing that I have that I'm really proud of is the way that this game has a 
betting system almost. Mm. Oh, that's right. Okay. Your wants. So, um, the the game uses a resource I call moats. And what you've got to do with this game is you've got to have a pile of something. Uh, what I use is these wonderful little costume jewelry rubies that Uh are perfect. I have, and I have like 500 of them. And, um, you put a couple of them forward and you say, this is connected to a wand. And, uh, I've been using post-it notes now. So you put a post-it note down, you write your want on it, you pile your, your moats on them. Uh, that way you can have multiple of them because that was a problem we had early on. Uh, that was a problem with the Metatopia game. You could only have one. So now you can bet everything else out onto desires Mm. that you create or wants. I keep saying desires, but they're wants now. I don't know. Linguistics, right? Similar. Yeah. Um, and those are based on your fancies and your convictions. Okay. So when you don't really have much else to do, it's always a good idea to throw out a, some, a want based on your fancies because they're usually frivolous and easy to do. I want ice cream. Bloop, done. Um, and then you go out to achieve that. And that can give the GM story hooks because I'm a big believer in the GM as a reactive entity. Um, I don't want GMs to script a story out and I don't think they should. I think the GM should have resources that they can bring into play based on player choices. So what the GM does instead is that they define villains and the villains have plans, but the, the villains plan unfolding is not the important part because the plan is always like, you know, I built Jadeite. He's an idiot and he needs to steal some stuff. And he does that by creating schemes based on, you know, uh, subverting capitalist culture, like making evil stores and evil sales and stuff like that. Like that's who Jedi is. Uh, mm-hmm. So when you go out to get ice cream, there's a hook for the GM to go, Oh, cursed ice cream shop. But the other part of that is that achieving your desires gets you more moats. So getting the things you want lets you build up this big pile and invest in more of these silly things and invest in one another okay. and throw them around. And your moats are also your mana and your health. You use them up. When you get hit, you use them to cast spells. You throw them at one another all over the place. They're yeah. very fluid resource. The economy in this game is super fast. But if you fail to achieve what you wanted, you actually t- still get something. You lose those moats, but you get experience points. And that's the only way to do that. Oh, okay. So in order to grow as a person, your character has to be confronted by adversity and lose. Yeah. Um. And so the thing that's interesting there is that you are motivated as a character to expand by taking on things that you can't achieve, uh, which your convictions mm. are often the source of that. Once you've gotten yourself into trouble with your f- your fancies, you can then start using your convictions in this higher stakes scenario to go like, oh, like the ice cream shop, the owner of the ice cream shop is, has been kidnapped. And I have a conviction here that says that, you know, I always defend the innocent sure and ice cream shop man never did nothing wrong <laughs> so uh that i create that conviction and convictions are uh magnified mm-hmm. uh at least they're going to like i'm not sure exactly how much they're going to be magnified mm-hmm. but convictions are much more important and they'll they'll be harder to do and the sting of them will be much greater because your moats your big pool of moats are sort of a general um indicator of your character's well-being they're sort of a holistic interpretation of your character's psychology. You can never have too many of them, but you don't want to run out of them. <laughs> um, yeah. Ooh, it's tricky. Yeah. But um, getting experience points from confronting it because, oh, you know, maybe you didn't rescue the ice cream man or maybe you didn't rescue him in time. Like, that can happen. Like, the, you know, this game is based on the, the sort of 
the the brighter Sailor Moon stuff, but mm-hmm. bad stuff happens in that show too. Like, oh my god. Yeah. So um you know, that that happens and your character is forced to confront a failure of the, a fa- a failing of their own. Mm-hmm. So they get this experience out of it and they can turn those experience into like obviously you can buy new spells, you can buy new fun things, but the way that experience spending works is that everything you spend on magic, mm-hmm. when you reach a certain amount of magic stuff that you want to have spent it on, you check off a box of personal advancement because all of the the advancements done with checkboxes because it's brilliant and wonderful and <laughs> thank God for Apocalypse World teaching us that. <laughs> um, so uh, you have the on, on your character sheet, which is bifurcated, or you'll have to. I don't know how much material is going to go on it yet. Sure. There is a section of personal advancements. And the personal advancements do things like they make your convictions be worth more. So it's more important for you to stand up to your for your convictions instead of just your fancies. Mm-hmm. Or they make your fa- the return on your fancies different so that um, like you, you start doing them not as like the thing that drives the play play along entirely because now you have these greater investments with your convictions, mm-hmm. but instead they're things that you start doing uh, as self-care. Um, mm. You know, like uh, they, they become recovery instead of greed um, because early on, like going out for the ice cream when you have th- important things to do, that's selfish. But later on when you've done the important things or when you're in the process of doing important things, it makes sense to go out and indulge. Yeah. Um, and so basically your character, as your character matures in terms of mechanics, your incentives become more mature as well. Um, and you start like, you start gaining new convictions as well. So you get the space to write down stuff about, you know, standing up for my little sister or whatever the F like, you know, like things that make you take responsibility because convictions are always responsibilities. And by doing that, (laughs) you get crazy magic powers too. (laughs) Yay. That's what everybody wants. Exactly. It's the cool magic powers. So what are your magical girl's powers? Um, I keep it pretty freeform. Yeah. I have, um, you can write down an element on your character sheet that I call it the aspect mm-hmm. because what it is, 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 uh, whatever the visual auditory or elemental representation of your character's powers, mm-hmm. because the way I figure it is that magic is deeply personal and works different for everyone. Yeah. Uh, like the rules are different for everyone. So if you're one of those magical girls who's very empirical and like really loves the science, you probably think your powers work on like, oh, it's a very specific circumvention of the uh. you know the laws of thermodynamics. <laughs> and somebody who's a little bit more um, loose with it and a little bit more freeform mm-hmm. is just like, yeah, I think about it and it happens. <laughs> um, but the magic is um, there's a couple of things that all the magical girls have. They're like super tough, super fast. Um, they're very elegant, like uh, a sort of. Cat-like is a term I use a lot because, you know, they'll always land on their feet if they fall. They always find a, sure. a way to grasp onto a ledge or fit in somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I deliberately didn't want them to be is that unless you choose it deliberately, magical girls aren't strong. Like, they're not superhero strong. They don't pick up cars right, and throw right. things. Um, because that's not the kind of power that those characters express. Mm-hmm. You can if you want to. You can be Sailor Jupiter and punch a car across the, the road. Yeah. Um, but that's... The not like in your default power set. Um, right. The other interesting one is that magical girls don't age unless they want to, uh, mm. which is tied to the idea that they don't age unless they mature, so, which allows you to do cool things like playing a magical girl who has been uh, a shitty delinquent since the eighties <laughs> and is just still kicking around <laughs> as a kid. 
And the magic covers for you. That's the other thing. Magic um, makes excuses in other people's minds for things that don't necessarily make sense. Ooh, okay. Uh, the biggest one being that you don't have to wear a mask. Nobody knows it's you unless they you tell them or they see you transform. Right. But that cuts both ways. The villains do the same thing. So Jadeite always looks like Jadeite, but you can't know. There's a masquerade mm-hmm. rule about that. Uh, which leads to interesting things where you as a GM can tell the players that this is the bad guy, but their characters don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, and then the other other powers are sort of uh, anything that's an attack is treated under the same rules. So punching somebody, shooting a bow and arrow, and shooting a magical bolt is treated roughly the same way. You get to tag your powers with like descriptors that can be useful narratively, but they're mostly handled the same way. And all the spells are utility-based. Things like illusions, clouds, like they're, they're very loose and easy to redefine because that's something that I think is really important. It's you always have to be able to redefine your character's abilities to fit who that you want them to be. Um, but I generally like want their powers to be uh, big and flashy and loud and yeah. scary to civilians a little bit because the undercurrent is that you're not just a magical girl group. You're a magical resistance group and the government controlling things thinks that you're terrorists. Ooh. Yeah. So, um, like there's a, a, a much darker interpretation that the regular civilian population has of magical girls. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm having a lot of fun writing little like snippets of like, <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the news thinks that you're a terrorist organization, but there's people on the internet who have different ideas about that. And like, there's a magical girl fandom in the in real life, who like you know a security yeah. camera footage caught a little bit of you know butterfly rampant and like everybody freaks out over it. Uh, so oh, that's that's yeah. very cool. <laughs> but the, yeah, there's a whole other layer than it sounds like to this yeah. to this game than what may people may assume magical girls are. You know, like there's yeah, I, I want really I cool. want there to be like um, I mean you're you're fighting to save the world, so you have to yeah. define what the world looks like. Yeah. So, and um, also, like, villainy stuff. I've been working on this. The Matrix has a lot of influence on this. Oh, okay. Because I'm, you know, I was, I watched The Matrix all the time when I was 13. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, but also. Because, like you do. Because yeah. uh, I hate that the red pill has been co-opted the way it has. Because, yeah. um, that like, I can't think of a better metaphor for becoming aware of patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you, you get this new knowledge and then. You see it in, encoded in everything around you, in conversations, in th- even things like architecture. You see oppressive structures start to, to, to be everywhere. You see the code. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, that kind of, that kind of came back in my head when I was writing this, this thing because the idea of, um, the reality that we have being constructed, but like the basic premise behind this is basically that oppressive structures exist because there's uh horrible demons. <laughs> yeah. And and our our world is being secretly controlled by a conspiracy of <laughs> beautiful flowy-haired bad guys from the first season of Sailor Moon. Um uh, if only. Yeah, I know it would be <sighs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Let's not mention the hair again. Yeah. <laughs> um but uh to so like tapping into those kind of metaphors led me to cool ideas of like there's more to the the, the world ex, ex, has a magical dimension that most people can't see which I'm calling the in between um, mm, okay which 
allows me to do some Madoka stuff, like sometimes you'll pursue a demon to a place of impossible space, so you can have a big fight without worrying about collateral damage. Yeah. But it also means you can do cool stuff like there's magical infrastructure all around us that maintains the magical portion of the world. Mm -hmm. So it's... Because you can't have the characters blowing up a hospital, even if it's evil. So instead, they go into the, the magical reflection of it, and they, they start oh, taking apart the yeah. evil infrastructure behind it. But it also means there's cool stuff like the demons have like interns that operate that stuff. <laughs> and some of them you can talk to, right? And nice. so it doesn't all have to be combat and explosions and stuff. It can be like cool. finding the demon's IT guy who runs their weird magical servers and being like, yo, what can we... Can we talk to you about this? Because a lot of them are workers who just want to do a good job, mm-hmm. who just happen to be working for an oppressive system. Very cool. Do you have a favorite magical girl? Uh, yes, I do. Um, I love Sailor Venus. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. Okay, why Sailor Venus? Um, Other than because she's the best. <laughs> she's the best. Uh, she's the funniest. Yeah. She, like, uh, she has the best episode of the original Sailor Moon, uh, which is, uh, I believe, episode 113, which mm-hmm. is the one where... The heart, the heart factory, or oh, not, the heart factory, are my knockoffs of those guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, um, the oh, I want to talk about them in a second. Um, the Deathbusters—that's what they're called. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're stealing the crystal hearts out of everybody, mm-hmm. and we have that great episode where uh, Monaco is the only one who hasn't been targeted. She's super bummed out about it. She's worried she doesn't have a pure heart. Yeah. And she decides that what she's going to do is she's going to prove it. She, you know, there's a blood drive going on. She's going to go to every blood truck, lie about her age, <laughs> and uh, give as much blood as she can yep. out of the passion of her heart. And then the, just the wonderful sequence of her getting her, you know, gets hit by the, the literal drive-by magical yep. shooting <laughs> of that of that arc. And yep. her heart, the heart crystal pops out and she stares at it for a second and goes, ha-ha, grabs it and runs away. Uh, I, I love that episode because it, like, she's a really cool character that I relate with because she's a really cool, like, I guess dichotomy is the word between, like, her silly yeah. and fun and... Uh, you know, low random sort of external persona. Sure. And the fact that she is a like she's basically a person who's dealing with a lot of like guilt and trauma. Yeah. But, you know, she was a superhero before any of them. Yep. And she also is the leader of the team mm-hmm. and has to take responsibility for everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um and so I really like that 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 character. Like that really speaks to me. Um yeah. the you know hiding your pain with humor is something that I relate to a lot. So yeah. Absolutely. And also, I love her hair with the bow in it. Uh-huh. Yep. She's very cute. <laughs> and I love her look as Sailor V with the glasses. Oh, mm-hmm. my God. The mask is so cool. It was a very cool touch. Oh, I, I like that a lot. Um, it's... I love how complex these characters are. It's very easy to boil them down to those archetypes that we come back to with these games. It's the smart one and the whatever. Yeah. Um, but they are such deep characters and have the ability to be such deep characters and they're all uh, so far at least in in most of these shows they're all girls they're all magical girls but they're they do it they're they're feminine in their own way their own definition of what that means whether that is being a very girly or whether that is being able to lift up a car or or even doing them both at the same time like jupiter's pretty cool in that she that's my favorite like i I love jupiter too like I love all of them. Like, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. They're all the best. But, Absolutely. Um, Jupiter is a really cool character because Makoto is like sort of torn between her her interests and her physical appearance yeah. are 
uh, especially so in different. Japan, like coated more masculinely. Yeah, she's she's very tall and very strong. And very and... tall at five foot six. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> um, but yeah, she's enormous and she's into martial arts and you know she has all of these these bigger interests. She's allowed. Yeah. She's imposing. Yeah, uh, she gets in people's way. Um, but she also just like wants to buy all the cute things and make cute food and yeah. fill our house with flowers and exactly. like think about boys but and like a lot of like the, there's the interesting discussion there of like given a lot of her characterization of how much of that stuff is her interest because she's genuinely into those things yeah. and how much stuff is she trying to adopt in order to appear more feminine because oh. she's worried about it see I, that's not the impression that I got that's interesting really because yeah. I, I got uh, I got I think I think part of the the that like she's all, like she has a lot of wistful moments mm-hmm. where she's worried about her height and her yeah like uh, the one of the best examples is the that episode of season four where they're at the dance yes and you know when you're tall like me nobody wants to dance with you and you can see like she has the most elaborate dress yeah. and she, like all that stuff and you know you you wonder if any of that is like That's trying to avoid point. a perception of herself maybe. You know? That's very possible. Ooh, that's especially because, about. like, yeah. early on in the original versions of Sailor Moon, before the editors got her to tone, <laughs> tone it down, Sailor Jupiter Makoto was a delinquent, like for real. Oh yeah, she yeah. She was a smoker and got in fights and like all that kind of stuff. And the idea of like if she would have a, a an arc of towards a, a more softened femininity, mm-hmm. uh, and but because we didn't actually get that, we instead have this character who is perceived that way. Yeah, and I think who who whose arc is more about being perceived the way she wants to be perceived. Yeah. Hmm. That's really cool. Yeah. I, I love yeah. Sailor Moon. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. We're going to have to start a Sailor Moon fan cast, or we just talk about Um <laughs> Well, first off, we'd have to be better at it than Sailor Business. Uh, yeah, I guess that's <laughs> But on the I other hand, yeah. I think we should... <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Are yeah. you kidding? Right? Oh, boy. I haven't actually listened to Sailor Business. I have to tell you an I amazing am... story about Sailor Business. Yes. Okay, so they had a guest on their show, Leanne Centaur. Okay. Leanne Centaur wrote the 90s novelizations for Sailor Moon. <gasps> Yes. So she's been a guest on the show a couple times. Fantastic. I was at, like two years ago now, I guess. Mm-hmm. I was at uh, Kineticon, and I was wandering through the halls looking for a panel to go to. It was mm-hmm. late on a Saturday. I was I had uh, my headphones in my ears, and I was listening to Sailor Business, an episode with Leanne Centaur in it. And I saw an open panel room, and I went, oh, I'll duck in. They're just starting. Ducked in. Took my headphones out. The voice continued. <laughs> I went, wait a minute, what? And I looked up. And the woman speaking had Leanne Centaur's voice. Oh, and I looked wow. at the banner and I went, uh, you know, Sparkler <laughs> Monthly or whatever. Yeah. I think that's what she runs. Leanne Centaur. And I was like, <laughs> like my mind broke. Like the call is coming from inside the yep. house sort of thing. And I went, you're Leanne Centaur. And yeah. then she went, yes, I am. <laughs> you wrote the Sailor Moon novelizations in the 90s. And she like just downcast. Yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah. It was a dark period, yeah. there, I guess. Yeah, uh, it was. Oh. It was freaky and awesome. That's great. It's a Sailor Moon miracle. Yeah. <laughs> what else should we talk about about your game? Anything in particular? Uh, I don't know. Like, okay. this is uh, my, unfortunately this has been the most I've talked about Five Across the Heart in a while. Because that's I've okay. Been... I just want to make sure we didn't miss anything that you like. Definitely no. wanted to hit on. Um, so. Oh, right. I wanted to talk about villains because I'm having a great yes. time with that. Well, I love I'm, the Sailor Moon villains. They are ridiculous that, and amazing. Are, oh, like, 
completely over the top nonsense. I love them so much. <laughs> I I want to know, like, I want to I want to peek in on their staff meetings or oh something, my God. like. What? Especially some of the, like, okay, we know what this, the meetings for, like, the Dark Kingdom look like. Uh-huh. Queen Barrel being like, all of you shut up. Yeah. <laughs> I've got this shit. But, like, yeah, the, the Black Moon Clan, that's got to be a disaster. Yep. The, the Death Busters, we know, like, a lot of uh-huh. what we see is their weird bureaucracy. Like, right. that's great. Um, oh, yeah, God. So, I love the villains in Sailor Moon. hmm But I also know that comedy villains lack uh, the same impact on the gaming table. Yes. But I love them all so much. So I started, my thought process was what I need to do is I need to retool the Sailor Moon villains to be credulous villains and still have a lot of their aesthetics. Mm-hmm. So I've re- I basically rebuilt the, all five seasons of villains into threats for the game. So the Dark Kingdom became the High Court, the, the okay. secret cabal of immortals that rule the world. Mm-hmm. They're still pretty and they still have long flowy hair and they still have impeccable suits. But they've got some freakier stuff going on. So the High Queen is the villain. She's Queen Barrel, basically. Yeah. Uh, but it's not really clear how much of a villain she is. It's not really clear how much she interacts with anything, actually. Hmm. She's locked herself away in the tower, and everything's sort of running on autopilot. Okay. Uh, all the marshals, the generals of the, the High Court, they all are linked to her heart directly. And oh. Through, they have a piece of crystal yeah. through their chest. Mm. And like sticking out either yeah. end, and that's oh. they also they all have really low cut tops. So <laughs> Thank you for that. Out. Yeah, <laughs> um, but um, it links their magic to her, and magic being intensely personal, it is a way of illustrating their depersonalization and mm-hmm. the because they've given up their own magic, and they just use mm. the magic of the High Queen now. Um, so they were fun. I wanted to have the Black Moon Clan, so I did uh, Exiles from the Future. And I made yep. them, um, w- like, basically, there's a future war in the in this. Because one day the rebellion rises up completely. Like, they, they, they throw oh. off the shadows in the masquerade. Okay. And a hundred years from now, there's a, 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 a war breaks out with the magical girls on one side and the, the villains on the other. And it's huge and awful and yeah. terrible. And so there are war refugees from the future oh. who flee back to the past. Yeah. But the problem is that... Uh, as well as well as these these refugees who the magical girls are often helping, like helping them get acclimatized to the past, mm-hmm. helping them link up with their family. Sometimes you go into the future and you have to sort of deal with your future selves and your future perception of yourself and the future shifts and changes. Like I, I thought that's an important thing because in yeah. the second season, one of the most important parts of that is that we learn a lot about their destinies, yes. which informs who they how they think about themselves. Um, but the other thing that comes through is people from the future who want to change the past and change your past, uh, who maybe have been fighting too long or who have sold out their side or whatever, and they're going back to do awful things, to set up ambushes, to like uh, try to deal with the, the villains in the past without really caring about the people who live there. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a good villain with moral complexity because right. they're supposedly on your side. And then my favorite villains are the Heart Factory, the Deathbusters from the third season. Yeah. They are a government conspiracy, but like of the human government, who people who got wind of the fact that they're not in charge and Ooh. that magic exists and okay. who are trying to even like even the score and close the gap a little. Uh, and they're called the Heart Factory after a Slater Kinney, Kinney song. And they're all, all their stuff is drawn from the, 
lyrics of this song. So the heart, the the Deathbusters took people's heart heart crystals. Mm-hmm. These people actually take your real heart. Uh, oh shit! <laughs> and they replace it with a machine that controls your emotions. Yeah, it's something that can happen to your character. And what they'll do is they'll set desires for you. Um, oh, all right. So, um, but they're they're really they're sort of this sinister like Men in Black organization, mm-hmm. which I have a lot of fun with. Uh, and they have they're sort of represented um, both in the the like the high court villains because they are supposedly on the same side as them, so they mm-hmm. supply the like the the cops with the pseudo magical powers and stuff that you occasionally you have to deal with. Mm-hmm. But they also have their own evil agendas and scientists and bad stuff. <laughs> uh, the I wanted to have like a, a cosmic threat that was bigger and sort of outside context, yeah. and the. Um, the 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 Dead Moon Circus, the fourth season villains. Mm-hmm. Um, man, I, the fourth season has so many problems. But when you tell people that the premise of it is that there is a magical evil circus yeah. chasing a Pegasus through people's dreams, yep, yep, yep. Fuck yeah, yeah. So I have these the this villain, uh, the Dream Eaters. That um, the the last big event in prehistory was the High Queen killed a god. Killed the oh. god of dreams. Oh boy! Uh, shattered it into puzzle pieces and uh-huh. hid the pieces in people's minds. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, and um, occasionally, somebody gets two pieces and they lock together, and the 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 god of dreams starts talking to them oh and god. starts telling them to, how to rebuild him. And so I'm picturing a lot of uh, like Satoshi Khan, like paprika mm-hmm. imagery. Yeah, like a lot of riotous weird imagery and like like sort of opening people's heads not in a gruesome violent way but in a freaky discordant way and sure. into and they all their dreams spill out of their head and yeah. turn into monsters uh and then the final villains galaxia and the the evil senshi mm-hmm. there's um the high court has a militia of magical girls oh they have royal magical girls and where the uh, the rebel magical girls that you play are all individuals and they're all, mm-hmm. you know, you all have your own things and your own desires and your own, uh, ways of approaching things. The Royal magical girls have uniforms. They wear all white. Mm. And they, the, the, they have a sort of twist on the, the classic magical girl story because the way that they recruit them is that they tell them that they are princesses mm. and they tell them that they have a grand destiny and all you have to do is oh. deal with these traitors my heart i know oh no but they also give them powers that are very uh i base them off of sort of mean girl clique sort of stuff so okay. they have um they have they're issued notebooks that they can write <gasps> people's names into oh. and guardian angels come and rest on their shoulder and whisper into their ears like when they stray from the right path so if you set a desire, but you're under the influence of the Royal Magical Girls, the GM can modify the desire. <gasps> Holy crap. <laughs> oh my gosh, those are so good. Those are so good. Oh, evil Magical Girls and their burn books. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's so good. <laughs> I'm so excited for this. This yeah. is great. Yeah, uh, I, I, it's good that I got to talk about it because now I'm excited about it too. And I'm going to go home and I'm going to do more writing. Yay! <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Um, 
And and where can we find you online so we can hear you talk about writing or ask you questions or cool. see so how this is going? The easiest way to find me generally is Twitter. I'm at nice uh, at open underscore sketchbook on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, and I need to update the link, but I have a link. I'll pin the tweet for it because I find <laughs> for the last little bit I had a, the, my t- pin tweet was about my Vietnam War game. Mm-hmm. This Vietnam War game was supposed to be a quick win, not an endless quagmire, <laughs> and. It was up there for like a year, and I finally finished that game, so I took yep. that pin t- tweet down, and then started working on a World War One game, and it got yeah. hitched up. Oh. So I immediately put up, this World War One game was supposed to be finished by Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh but I, I, that one's done, so now I can put a new pin tweet up, which will be a link to nice. um, the forum thread that is most of where I post my stuff. Cool. It's like just 200 pages of me posting <laughs> patch notes about various games I'm working on and ambitions and projects and stuff I'm trying and stuff that isn't working and Wonderful. Uh, discussing it. Um, oh, so, that's going to be such a good resource, I think, for people who are in that quagmire yeah. of uh, playtesting and how do I fix things. That's great. And it also has sort of, I do po- every time I start a new game that I feel is going to go somewhere, I do a post about it, mm-hmm. summarizing it and summarizing my original intention. And that's where a lot of people like saw the first versions of Far Across the Heart and heard... Yeah. Um, you know, uh, the Matrix meets Met- uh, Sailor Moon meets yeah. Rebel Girl meets uh, like Devil May Cry style combat. Cool. <laughs> so, which is an easy sell for a lot of people. <laughs> and they went, yes. Tell me more. <laughs> yes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for talking about this. This is. Th- thank you for having me. I've been. Thanks for the motivation. <laughs> yeah, anytime. It's my pleasure. More Magical Girl games for me to play. Yes. <laughs> Huge thanks again to Erica for chatting with me at the end of a busy con weekend and for being such a great con buddy. You can find her links in the show notes and totally keep an eye out for this game. She's already got a character sheet made up for Star Butterfly, so you know this is going to be rad. Some Kickstarters have wrapped up recently. Congrats to The Watch and to Companion's Tale and to Sig and Alas for the Awful Sea for all funding successfully. Noir World just went up uh, two days ago now from when this episode airs, and it is doing astronomically well. I'm thrilled to see you heroes supporting good, good games by such great people. You're all fantastic. That's it for this week, heroes. You can find Modifier on Twitter at Modifier Podcast or at the headquarters at modifierpodcast.tumblr.com. You can send comments, questions, or contribution suggestions to modifierpodcast at gmail.com. If you like the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes as that helps more people find us. Modifier is a proud member of the OneShot Podcast Network, an amazing family of RPG podcasts that includes incredible shows like OneShot, Campaign, Backstory, and Talking Tabletop. Modifier's theme music was created by my favorite Bothan, Cat Greenfield, whose myriad talents are on display at catgreenfield.com. Join me again in two weeks for another episode of Modifier. See you then. <laughs>